0: My name is Emily. I'm a member here and also the kids director. You guys can actually remain standing for the reading of God's word, which is from Philippians chapter two, verses one through eight. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And I'm uh, just grateful to be able to worship with you through song. And now open up God's word together. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we give you thanks that we can come and gather together this morning. And Lord, every week we give thanks to you for that. Um, it's a privilege for us to be together as a church. It's a, an honor to do it. It's a gift from you uh, that you don't save us and bring us into relationship with you and then leave us to ourselves that you fill us with your Holy Spirit and you bring us into a family of brothers and sisters. All men and women in process, in progress of becoming more like Jesus. And so we just want to celebrate that this morning, give you thanks for that. And especially thinking about that today in light of what we looked at last week in the text and thinking about the, the persecuted church this morning. This is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. God, we just don't want to not remember the fact, lose the the reality of the the freedom we have to gather together this morning where many of our brothers and sisters gather under threat of very real physical persecution. Lord, thank you that we have this chance today, this opportunity today. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Uh, You do, uh, but we don't, and so we trust you for that. But we pray now that you would teach us, that you would lead us, as we sang earlier, that you would lead us back to life in you. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you do a work this morning. Would you guide us in truth? Would you lead us in your truth? Would you teach us this morning that we might be conformed more and more into the image of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had those moments uh, in, in life where you, you recognize something that you just haven't really ever noticed before? So in, in our neighborhood, I walk Owen, my oldest son, up to the bus stop most mornings, and we live at the end of our street, and we have to walk up a hill, and his bus stop's one street over. And so pretty much every morning, we walk by all the houses on our road. And, and recently, uh, my wife Amy was mentioning a house on our street that had something strange in its front yard. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I mean, I've walked by, the, by this house most, most days. I've driven by it multiple times. And yet I didn't even know which house she was talking about, let alone what was sitting in the front yard. But now, because she's pointed it out to me, I've noticed it more. It's kind of the same thing happens when you start maybe thinking about buying a, a new car or looking at a particular thing. And all of a sudden you see those cars everywhere out in the road. It's been brought to your attention. Or maybe there's those moments where you've thought you've noticed something, but it's just been a while since you've really been taken aback by it, you, when you've really been kind of captivated by it. Maybe it's been a while since you've been outside to really look at the beauty of creation. And today's a, a good example. Of that is it' a beautiful fall day today. And so it's just one of those things. Did we, did we wake up this morning and come and gather and never stop to look up and say, man, this is amazing that God has allowed us to enjoy his creation Or maybe you've had those moments where you've maybe been traveling somewhere. You're flying and you get in an airplane and you rise up above the clouds and you look out your window and you see that beautiful patchwork on the ground and you think, man, what an amazing view, an amazing place that we get to live. But it's just been a while since you've taken time to notice those things. Well, as we come to our text today, that's kind of been the case for me this week. It's been the case because... As as we've gone through this book of Philippians over and over again, it's a book that I'm familiar with. I've looked at, I've studied before. I know the text that we're going to look at today. I've looked at it in personal study and in studying in seminary. I've shared it with people in premarital counseling before. I could tell you what our text is about. I think I could explain it well to you. But this week, it's been more beautiful to me. It's been more captivating to me. And I think part of that's because I've just taken some time to slow down and meditate On God's Word this week. But I also think the Spirit has been teaching me a lot about my own heart, my own life. He's been showing me and teaching me a lot about our church. And so as I have studied this text that we're going to look at this morning, as I've looked at it this week, it's been a nice, gracious gut punch. And man, I'm grateful for that. And because I love you, I hope it's a nice, gracious gut punch for you as well this morning. Not because I have great things to say, not because I have rhetorical abilities to share with you that you'd be wowed by the words I say. No, it's because the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God, and He's using it to expose you. But as He exposes you, He seeks to restore you and transform you and make you more and more like your Savior. And so as we dive into our text today, Paul calls us to something that really is absolutely critical for your life. And it's critical for our community. What Paul calls us to in this text is unity and humility. Unity and humility. And more specifically, what he calls us to is unity that's rooted in, that comes through humility and sacrificial love. And so I, I think that if we really take this to heart, if we don't just allow this to be information for our brains, that we have a knowledge of Philippians chapter 2, but we actually take it to heart, allow the Holy Spirit to allow it to sink deeply into us, that it'll actually revolutionize your life. Now, revolutionize is a significant word, right? I'm not saying that lightly. I'm not using that word, throwing it out there for just effect. I really believe that if we actually take this to heart, that God can radically transform your life. And that as he revolutionizes your life, that he would revolutionize our church, that he would flip things upside down. And as he does that in us and in this community, that he would do it outside the walls of this gathering, outside this community, into the community that we find ourselves in. And so with that, let's dive into Philippians 2 and let God graciously punch us in the stomachs this morning. The first thing we need to see when we get into Philippians chapter 2 this morning is that this text flows directly out of what we just studied last week. And so you obviously have a chapter heading in your Bible. It says chapter 2. But when this was originally written by Paul, it wasn't written that way. He didn't write chapter 2. Now I'm transitioning. It was just a letter that he wrote to the Philippians. And so we need to see this flow of argument that Paul is laying out for us. So to do that, I want to go back and read Starting in verse 27 from chapter one, so you can kind of get the sense of what Paul is saying to us. So let's look at Philippians: 127. He says, "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love... Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So is our key connecting word here. Paul's saying, So, in light of what I've just said, what I've just called you to, to be citizens of heaven who are living worthy lives, worthy of the gospel staying focused and standing firm and striving side by side with one another to show the world the worth of Jesus, and not being frightened, not being scared in the midst of that. He says so in light of all that, but then he gives these qualifying statements. He says if there is any encouragement in Christ, if you are encouraged at all in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, if you're encouraged at all with the fact that you're united with Christ in all things, If there's any comfort of love, if you are comforted at all by the fact that you are loved by God, that he cherishes you, that he sees you as his son and daughter in Christ, that you've been adopted into his family, if there's any comfort for love in that, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if you are filled by and attentive to the leading and working of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the midst of whatever difficulty you might be going through, if there's any affection and sympathy. When it comes to the Philippians in particular, he's saying, listen, if you have any love for me, Paul's saying that if you have any love for me, if you have any sympathy for me and any of those who are in present suffering because they're proclaiming Jesus. But notice he says any. Like Paul's not saying you have to have tons of encouragement in Christ. You have to have an exhaustive comfort in love. You have to have a complete participation in the Spirit. You have to have an abundance of affection and sympathy. No, he says any, like at all, if there's even just an inkling of it in your life. If you're helped at all by any of those things, if you're drawn into what God is doing in our midst as the body of Christ, then, Paul says, complete my joy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We know Paul is already joyful. He told us that in chapter 1, verse 8. We know that he is still rejoicing. He told us that in chapter 1, verse 18. But here he says that his joy will be complete, full in this life when God's people are unified together. Paul's saying of all the good things that God could be doing, what's going to complete his joy is the unity of God's people. That's what he means by these four phrases at the end of verse 2. When Paul calls us to this unity, to be of the same mind isn't uh, groupthink, that we all have to think the same way. It's a call to a collective effort, to a cooperative spirit, to a focused goal. Of being disciples who make disciples. Being followers of Jesus who seek to make followers of Jesus. And the same love is loving and valuing and treasuring Christ above all things. That we would love Jesus above everything else. That we would believe Jesus is better than anything else this world offers to us. He wants them, he wants us to work together with a single-minded focus of making much of Christ, even in a small church community, but in the midst of the world in which we find ourselves in. See, Paul is calling the Philippians, he's calling us to gospel unity, a unitedness that is only possible because of Jesus. Listen, unity isn't impressive if everybody's the same. It's only impressive, it's, it's, a little bit of a a conundrum to us that grabs our attention when it it doesn't make sense. And we have to remember the church that Paul's writing to and who makes up this church. We have Lydia, who is a, a businesswoman, and she is particularly in business and selling goods to those that are in the upper class in her family. We have an orphaned slave girl that has recently, in the last decade of this church's existence, has been rescued out of demonic activity and slavery, but has no family apart from the church. And then we have the Philippian jailer, who's a blue-collar worker, along with his family in this church. We at least know that those people are a part of this community. It doesn't make sense for them to be in relationship with one another. It doesn't make sense for them to be united with one another, apart from Jesus And so when the world looks at them, they scratch their heads because it doesn't make sense. It's an opportunity in their unity to testify to the reality of what Christ does. So to have this kind of unity, the same mind, the same love, to be a full accord, a single-minded focus, it isn't a call to a homogeneous group that all looks and thinks the same. Then we can understand that the principles of sameness that Paul is talking about is a group of redeemed men and women who might be all different and come from different backgrounds and different places in life, who might look different, who might be from different socioeconomic statuses, all of them coming together to lift high the name of their Savior. To do that both personally and corporately, Paul, as he calls them to unity, is calling them to a commitment for Christ to be all and above all, in their life. This call to unity is a call to submit ourselves to our Savior and in turn submit ourselves to one another, as he says in Ephesians 5.21. And when we do this, we give reverence to Christ. Now we're going to struggle to advance the gospel in a hostile world. The world doesn't like the message that we preach. We're, We're calling them to follow Jesus as their only hope, as their only king. And so there's going to be hostility towards us in that. So what that means is we don't need to be then also hostile with one another. To be hostile is to be unfriendly, to be antagonistic, to oppose. And we can be tempted towards hostility even with one another when we seek to advance our own agenda above Christ's agenda. We can be tempted towards hostility with one another, when our preferences in our life are elevated to the point of laws. And then when someone breaks those laws, we demand justice for the lawbreaker in our pseudo-kingdoms. As one scholar says, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences. The true obstacle to unity is self-centeredness. And that's exactly why Paul says what he says in these next few verses. Let's look at verses 3 through 4 again. He says, do nothing. Right after saying this, calling him to unity, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In order for unity to be present, in order to do life side by side for the faith of the gospel, the community has to be marked by humility, which means that we have to love others more than we love ourselves. Paul's calling us to pursue unity that's rooted in humility, unity that's rooted in sacrificial love. And what he's saying is absolutely critical, not only for our survival, but for our ability to thrive and be faithful. But but what I want us to do is actually make sure that we understand what humility is. See, we all know the word humility, but I want to make sure that we understand what Paul's saying. What is biblical humility? Because if if we don't get that, we're going to miss the point. But if we do get it, it can significantly change our lives. And Paul gives us this contrast to help us understand. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And so we learn a few things from this. We learn what the opposite of humility is. The opposite of humility is selfish ambition. The opposite of humility is conceit. It's it's having a self-importance, a self-focus, a a me-first mentality. Believing that your wants and your desires and your dreams should not only be outright pursued by yourself, but they are actually more important than anyone else's. And because of that, a self-focused life ends up being a, a grumbling life, a complaining life. Because as I said earlier, when those things aren't met, when our needs and wants aren't at the forefront of not only our lives, but everyone else around us's lives, then we start to become hostile because our will and ways and desires are not met. Do you ever struggle with that? When you grumble or complain about something, is it because your preferences have become laws in your life? That no one is doing what you want them to do, when you want them to do it, and how you want them to do it? But listen, we can't simply learn what humility isn't. We also need to understand what humility is. Hannah Anderson, in her fantastic book, Humble Roots, a book that I was hoping to give out today after service, but Amazon lost it. Uh, And so I hope to give it to you next week. But in her book, Humble Roots, she says that humility is about knowing yourself as a creature. Or as Andrew Murray says in his book, Humility, a book I was also hoping to give out to you, but also got lost by Amazon. But there's a bunch of guys who went through man school that we gave that to. And so, men, I hope you've read that book. And if you know brothers who have been in that, then they have a copy they would love to let you borrow. He says this, Humility is simply acknowledging the truth of your position as the creature and yielding to God his rightful place. That's to say that you're not in control. You're not the king of the kingdom. You're not the queen of the kingdom. You are not God, that is the starting place of humility and the ending place for humility. You're a creature. The world does not revolve around you. But in a world that promotes a me first mentality, a self-sufficient mindset, humility is seen as weakness Because when we acknowledge that reality about our lives, what humility declares, what it acknowledges is that we're dependent people. And so dependence is the opposite of a Western mindset. It's the opposite of an American mindset. It's the opposite of a fallen human mindset. We want to be in control. We want to be like God. But this call to humility is then an otherworldly way of living. It's a different kind of kingdom way of living. In Jesus' kingdom, things are flipped upside down. It's the inverted kingdom of our Savior. Listen, at the end of the day, humility is a call to not care to be impressive. It's a call to not care to be impressive. And that's why it's so hard to be humble. Because if we're honest, if you're honest, you like to be noticed. You like to be liked, you like to be counted worthy, you like to be given praise. You like for people to notice how good you are at something, to give you accolades for that. You like for the world to revolve revolve around you. That you're the center of your universe. Your wants, your desires, your needs, your opinions are what matters the most. When I say that about you, And know it to be true about you because it's true for me. I struggle with this too. This is why these verses have just smacked me in the face this week. Why it's been a a punch to my gut this week. Because as I think about my own life, I know what humility means. I can read these verses and say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But do I, at the core of my being, really believe that I'm the problem? that pride is central to my own life, that I want my desires to be met, that I want my needs to be met, that I actually believe, yeah, everybody has opinions, but mine are a little bit better than yours. I mean, do you guys, do you have those moments where if you're just honest with yourself, you believe that to be true? I want me to be the center. I want comfort. I want ease. I want my way. I want my thoughts to be the ones that you're carried forward. That happens in ministry. That happens in life. I want to do, 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 do. I want things to get done, and I want to be in control of all of those things all the time. I struggle to raise myself and, and, and want my self-importance to be at the forefront of everything, the people to think well of me. I struggle with that, and I realize that when I struggle with that, I'm not walking in humility. I forget my creatureliness, that I'm not God. so many of us are anxious. So many of us are stressed out in life. But what we have to see that there's a connection between those things and our pride. Our pride convinces us that we are way more like God than we actually are. And it's in those moments that instead of looking to Jesus as your Savior, you look to yourself to be your Savior. And that will completely crush you. It'll obliterate you. You can't be that in your own life. And you can't be that for somebody else either. See, I think this is the reason Paul is bringing this up. Because our pride, our self-importance, our self-interest are the starting point and the center of every relational problem in your life. Of you trying to be like God is the root source of the difficulties you have in your life when it comes to relationships with people around you. Whether that happens to be in the workplace or in your home or in this church. And I say that because the reason for that is that if you're the center of your life, what drives your values, what drives your behavior is you. It's your pride and your self-importance and your self-interest that drive those things. And so we so often then start to place I at the center instead of you or we. We have the starting place of I instead of King Jesus. And man, the enemy uses that. There are three D's that the enemy uses over and over again, and he's so good at using these three D's in our life. He uses disunity, division, and distraction. He doesn't need any more tricks than that. Because he's doing a fine job to create disunity, to create division, and to create distraction among God's people. But it's rooted in pride, just like it was for him. See, when we place ourselves above other people, when we don't consider others' needs as more important than our own, when we don't remember that we're not God, it starts to create fractions in relationships. It starts to create this this division of asserting our own agendas and our own desires above somebody else's. And then we get distracted from what God actually wants us to do and the enemy wins. And so if we are going to have unity within the body of Christ, even just here at Sojourn Church, the path and foundation of that unity must be humility and sacrificial love. It's why Paul says, but instead of Having selfish ambition, instead of putting yourself first, instead of pursuing all your wants and desires, instead of being conceited to think you're the most important person in your life and in your community, instead do this. Love one another more than yourselves. Place other people, believe them to be more significant than yourself. It's the only way that you can be unified together as God's people. Here's what this means for us, though, as followers of Christ. Humility, then, is the highest virtue of your life. It's the most significant virtue. The highest virtue in your life is to get low. And it's the soil that all other graces from God are sprung out of, grow out of, is humility, sacrificial love. And if we understand that, we recognize that it then is essential for our survival and our thriving, both individually and corporately as a community. Because see, ultimately, Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to the the fullness of the body of Christ. He's talking to the community at large. But it begins with the individual. A humble church is made up of humble people. So how do we get it? They say, great, sounds good. I want to become more humble. How can I become humble? How can we do this when it's the exact opposite of our natural-born inclination? Hannah Anderson again says this, Most of us would probably agree that we should be more humble. We see it as that noble virtue, that high virtue. We may be even convinced that humility is essential to experiencing rest in our lives. But until we understand the extent to which pride infects our everyday choices, we will never be at peace. And this is where we can get off track sometimes. Because we can even be prideful in our pursuit of humility. Humility. I think this manifests itself in two common ways, the humble brag and self-deprecation. Right? The humble brag, it initially sounds humble, but it's an opportunity to focus more on yourself. We even use words like humble and thankful. Like, it doesn't matter what you say. If you say something like, well, I'm really humbled that I was so amazing at this thing. I'm so thankful that I got the opportunity to just be amazing today. I mean, I know that sounds really, we don't quite say it that way, but whatever we say after that, just an opportunity for you to talk more about how great you are. It's the, it's the picture of the, the publican who's in the temple praying, and there's the sinner the, the over here to the right, and he prays to God, God, I'm so thankful. I'm not like that guy, right? That's the, it sounds noble, it sounds righteous, but it's just, it's just pride. It's the humble brag or we can say well i i uh, i do not like humble bragging and so we can overcorrect to the opposite end of the spectrum and be self-deprecating where we put ourselves down in front of others but man self-deprecation can also just be pride masquerading as humility because there's in those moments we wallow in our lack of self-worth to try and show others that we we'll, that we're self-aware but really it's just more self-focus I'm the worst. I'm terrible at everything. I'm awful at everything. Nothing I do is good. And in those moments, what we're doing is we're just hoping somebody will say something different about us, but it's still focused on us. Anderson also says if a person must announce his humility because we wouldn't see it otherwise, he's not truly a humble person. If I have to let you know in some overt or roundabout way that I have humility, then I've already lost Humility is not about false modesty. It's not about being servile either. It has way more to do with a right assessment of yourself. But catch me on this, not a right assessment of yourself in comparison to other people. A right assessment of yourself in comparison to the holy God that we worship and follow. It's remembering your creatureliness. See, the word here that we translate into humility from the original language, it just means lowly mind. But as has been famously said, this isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less means you're thinking of God and his rightful place in your life more. So Paul calls us to pursue unity. He calls us to pursue this unity from and through humility and to evidence that humility by progressing in love for one another. By serving one another, by believing that other people's needs are at least as important as ours, if not more important than ours. By going out of our way to serve our brothers and sisters, by giving deference to one another, by believing the best in one another. Something that, for honest, seems kind of impossible in our life. And that's because, left to yourself, it 100% is impossible for you. See, Paul gives us such a high calling So opposite of our natural born inclination. And so we can, in the midst of that, feel crushed. Like, God, how in the world am I actually supposed to do this? I feel like every time I try to be humble, it's just another opportunity for pride. How can I actually do this? Well, Paul does what he's done throughout this letter. He again sets Jesus before us. Look at verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who... Brothers and sisters, if you want to be a humble church made up of humble people, we must see Jesus. And we must see that Jesus is both the means and the example of humility and sacrificial love. See, humility isn't something that you can just acquire. Like you're not going to become more humble because you listen to a sermon on humility. You're not going to become more humble because you read a book about humility. Those things can be helpful resources and tools for you, but they have to point you to your gracious savior. There's no magic pill, but there is a wonderful, rescuing, redeeming savior. And he is the means of your humility. He became a servant to rescue you from your sin and your selfishness. It's your pride that made redemption necessary. And so God crushed your pride through Christ's humility. So different than the way the world would do anything like that. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who has everything, all power and authority, who is the very word of God, who's been in existence forever and was a part of creation, set it aside to take on the form of a servant to rescue his enemies. And in doing that, then he also becomes an example for you of what humility actually looks like. An example that you can now follow because of new life in him. In Jesus, we see a deep love for God and a deep love for others he had this position of power and he took on a position of weakness for the sake of his enemies, for the sake of others. He had everything and lovingly and willingly laid it all down to rescue others apart from himself, to rescue you. You need to be saved by Christ. You need to be served by Christ. I need to be saved by Christ. I need to be served by Christ. But we often don't like that idea. We don't like the idea of having to be needy, to need something. And that happens in everyday moments of our life. A lot of you, and this is another form of pride in your life, a lot of you may struggle with, you're, you're great at being a servant to others, but you have a really hard time being served. Jesus in the gospel is the perfect example from the get-go that all of us need to be served. We cannot do it on our own apart from him. It reminds me of the story when Jesus in the upper room before he goes to the cross is washing the disciples' feet and he puts on a towel and he gets down to wash their feet. And Peter looks at his savior, looks at his king, and he says, no, Jesus, like, no, like you, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, no, you, Peter, you don't understand. You, you need to pay attention to what I'm doing for you. And then Peter kind of rebukes Jesus. Jesus, I'll never let you wash my feet. Kind of sounds a little bit like some self-deprecation, right? Jesus, I'm not worthy of you washing my feet. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. I love Peter's reaction. Jesus, fine, wash all of me then, head to toe. Right, so in that moment, he's confronted with the fact that he doesn't want to be served. He's confronted with his pride. And Jesus says, no, I have to serve you. You have no life apart from me serving you. You have no salvation apart from me serving you. Me laying down my life for you. I think all of us struggle with that. So my encouragement to us this morning, whether you know Christ or don't know Christ, is to come to Christ. To come to him this morning, knowing that his yoke is easy, his burden is light for you. That he is a worthy savior who came to serve you, to save you so that he could crush your pride and give you humility. See, Jesus was crucified for you. Crucifixion, the form, that form of execution from the Romans, was about the destruction of a person in every way. It, it was shameful, it was public, it was humiliating, it was painful. Jesus was crucified for your pride. And so then, when Jesus says to you, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus is inviting you to lay down your life and let him crush it. Destroy the remnants of your old self. Destroy those aspects of who you are that say, I am not a creature of God, I want to be like God. Take up your cross, be crucified with Christ, or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Brothers and sisters, a call to Christ-like humility is a call to die to yourself. To lay down your wants, to lay down your desires, to lay down your rights, to lay down your preferences for the sake of others. To lay down your self-sovereignty, to lay down your self-focus, to lay down all of those things to honor your Savior. And the cultivation of dying to yourself, of this Christ-like humility, often comes, though, through being broken by God. Through, through being disciplined by God. Because the reality is, we wouldn't learn it any other way. And that's been the case for me. When I've, There's been moments in my life where God has broken me, where he's disciplined me, and the midst of that is showing me how much I've struggled with self-importance, how much I've with, struggled with self-focus. And as painful as it's been, in those moments, it's always been for my good, because I stop and think, would I have learned this any other way? so we have to see those moments and realize that if if we're really recognizing what God is doing, that in those moments, all we truly have is Jesus. And when we realize all we truly have is Jesus, self starts to slip more and more into the background. But listen, I don't want us to miss something significant about what Paul says here. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul's saying is, look, if you want to be marked by humility and sacrificial love, he says, you have this mind, have this, be mind, uh, have a mind of Christ, be like Christ, but we have this mind in Christ. That's good news for us. Humility starts with us having a mindfulness of Christ. And if you've been united with him, you can see the fruit of humility grow. But the opposite's also true. You cannot pursue humility. You cannot become more humble. You can't become more like Jesus apart from him. And this fruit of humility that can grow as you seek to latch onto Christ, it replaces the rotten fruit of pride. But it starts with having a mindfulness of Christ. And, I, and when I say mindful, I think sometimes we, we think mindful is kind of like I, I'm, I'm giving attention to something. Like I'm mindful that you're over there. I know, I'm aware. But this is more of the idea of like a mind full of Christ, like you're filling up on Jesus. Your mind is saturated with Christ and the way that he lives and thinks and and who he is. It's taking your rightful place as a creature and allowing God to be the creator, the sovereign king over all things, including every little detail of your life. Jesus enables you to do it. He's the example for you to do it. So come to him, look to him. See, I love that we never have to wonder to what extent Paul means when he says to look out for the needs of others, to consider them as more significant than yourself. Jesus showed us that. He did it for us. It's not like, well, how much do I need to do this? we want to ask that question. Like how, when you say more significant, like how much more significant do they need to be than me? Jesus laid it all down for you. He gave us the example for that. And so this call to humility, this call to sacrificial love, isn't a call to adopt a new skill set in your life. It's a call for Jesus to fundamentally change you, the core of your being. More of him, less of you. And it's so kind of the Lord to point this out to us, to have this time in his word. It's kind of him to point it out to us, to show us our problem with pride, to highlight that, to shine a spotlight on that, showing us our lack of humility because in that moment, it's a gift to you because he gives you another opportunity to repent. He gives you another opportunity to turn once again to your Savior who laid aside everything for you. And I say it's kind because if we get this, it can radically change your life and your relationships. Like I said earlier, most conflict, most disunity comes from a lack of believing the best in one another, It comes from a lack of of focusing on the needs of others and too much focus on ourselves. It comes from a lack of humility and love. Andrew Murray stings us again. Listen to this quote. He says, All lack of love, all disregard for the needs, feelings, and weaknesses of others, all sharp and hasty judgments and words, listen to this, so often excused under the plea of being outright and honest. Have you ever started a conversation that way? Listen, I'm just trying to be honest with you. All, and he goes on, all manifestations of temper, touchiness, and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride that only seeks itself. The text of Philippians 2 is the crux of everything else we've talked about over the last few weeks. It's where the rubber meets the road. Because listen, you can say all day to live as Christ, to die as gain. You can say all day that you're passionate about living a life worthy of the gospel, striving for the faith of the gospel. You can say all day that you're a, a person who's passionate about truth. But if you lack love, if you lack humility, then your words and actions are meaningless. Paul says you're a noisy gong. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to be around noisy gongs. Humility is the highest virtue. Everything else flows out of that. And so, as followers of Jesus, we should be the most humble people, the most loving people in a world that doesn't believe that that's a good thing. We should be the most humble people and the most loving people in this world because we've acknowledged our need to be saved. When you say you need to be rescued, you're evidencing humility because you're admitting that you can't do it on your own. And so, what I don't want us to do in the midst of trying to cultivate humility is just condemning ourselves. Murray goes on to say it's necessary to understand that it's not sin that humbles most, but grace. And we don't help humble one another by talking about how sinful we are. We grow in humility by recognizing the lavishness of God's grace that he pours out on us. And so as we strive to live lives in unified community, marked by humility and sacrificial love, we have to look to Jesus. Jesus. And as we do that, it will change things for us. It'll change the way you view yourself. It'll change the way you view others. It'll free you to flourish as the human being you were made to be, including all of your limitations. Because you're not God. And so if you're experiencing fruitlessness in your life and frustration or failure, it's likely due to a lack of humility. It's due to a lack of seeing yourself rightly before God. So look again to the one who lived and died for you. His humility is your salvation. And it allows you to view others the same way Jesus views you. See, thinking of others as better than yourself isn't, again, an assessment of their worthiness of that. It's call, a call to love people and care for people like Jesus loved and loves and cares for you. It allows you to be patient with others, to be long-suffering. It allows you to be gracious and merciful. It allows you to be gentle and kind. It allows you to love and be joyful. It allows you to be more like Jesus. It's why it's the highest virtue. Everything flows from it. See, in a world that's so focused on self, humility isn't glamorous. It isn't glamorous, but it is holy. And I would much rather us be a holy people than a glamorous people. It's why it's one of our confident hopes as a church that we're praying that God would develop this kind of culture within our church, that we would have an unwavering commitment to holiness and humility. Because when we look to Jesus as the means for humility, as we look to Jesus as the example of our humility, it can transform your life. It can give you freedom when you recognize and acknowledge the fact that you aren't God. It can, it can alter relationships. It can alter a family When husbands and wives recognize that they're not the center of their marriage and the center of their family, if they seek to place one another's needs above their own, as roommates do that, as siblings do that, as children do that with their parents and parents with their children, it can alter a family. It can shape a community. Then when you actually believe this to be true and you look around at one another, you're not just looking at others and saying, what can you do for me or what have you done for me lately? But you're looking, how can I serve you? How can I love you? And when I need to be served... Asking people to do that, welcoming being served by others. And as we do that, it can revolutionize the world we find ourselves in. That as we go out into Fairfax and go out into Northern Virginia and go out into the world, that if we walk out and go out of here with humility and sacrificial love, it'll be so distinct and so different from anybody else's experience with anyone else that people go, I don't understand why Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. And I long to see that happen in me. I long to see it happen in you and in our church and in the community we find ourselves in. Brothers and sisters, if you want to have unity in your life, in relationships, in this church, then pursue humility. And if you want to pursue humility, pursue Christ. Every week as a church, we get to take communion together. And it's a reminder of the fact that the humility of Christ is the means of our salvation. Jesus went to a cross to bear the weight of our sin and shame, even though he had no sin and shame. He became a servant for us, a slave for us, enduring the death that you and I deserve. And so this morning, when you eat this bread, when you drink the cup, let it be an opportunity for you to confess your pride and your need for rescue and redemption. And today as you come forward, may it be an opportunity to pursue Christ so that you can pursue humility and remind you that we're called to love others more than we love ourselves, just as Christ did for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we're so glad God brought you to gather with us this morning. We want this to be a community where you can ask questions, where you can learn more of what it means to know Jesus and follow Jesus in all parts of your life. And as we talked about this morning, we're works in progress. We're a messy group of people. Well, this morning, though, I just want to ask you not to come forward to the table, because as we come forward, what we're declaring is, yes, we're a mess, but we have a wonderful Savior, and we're desperate for Him. And so if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, if you haven't yet cried out to God, I am desperate for rescue, I'm desperate for salvation. If this is hitting you this morning, recognizing pride in your own life, would you just say, stay in your seat and confess that to the Lord? And then let somebody around you know, like, I-, I need Jesus. Would you help me understand what that looks like, what that means? We'd love To journey with you in that. Those of you that will come forward, come to the tables in the front or the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and hear what Christ, our humble Savior, has done for you, spoken over you today. Let's pray.